Well, it is uh, good to see you guys this morning. We are going to be in the book of Romans this morning. So if you guys will turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. As you guys turn there, I'll, I'll tell you guys, uh, uh, we'll start in the book of Romans this morning, but we're going to probably bounce all over the place a little bit. Like we've been doing every week this semester, as you've kind of been walking through this series. I hope you guys have been enjoying the series. As we kind of planned it, I'll, I'll tell you guys, uh, this week and next were two of my uh, favorite weeks that I was looking forward to. This issue of, can I live like hell but still go to heaven? And then next week we're going to look at the issue of, is God Republican or Democrat? So uh, we're going to dive into the political realm for a morning in a way that we almost never do. So I encourage you guys to come back next week. But this morning, can I live like hell and still go to heaven? That's where we're going to be uh, camping out this morning. And I think we're going to give you guys an answer that's a little bit different than what you normally have heard and are hearing today. So we're going to start out this morning, Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. If you guys will follow along with me, I'll read aloud. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Continue with me in chapter 6. For what shall we say that are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Pray with me. Father God, we give you great thanks this morning for you have done something on our behalf that we did not merit, that we could not earn. Um, That the death of your son took away the penalty of our sins and we have great joy in that great anticipation of what is to come. And yet for many of us today, the reality is that it is not well with our soul. Uh, We sing that over and over even this morning. And yet for many of us, what echoes in our souls and what echoes in our hearts is an ache and an emptiness and a difficulty and a struggle and a groan this morning. And Father, I pray this morning as we come before your word, as we come into your presence and continue, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and that you would appear and that you would make yourself manifest in a unique and fresh way. Father, I pray for all the anxieties and all the stresses, all the things that are orbiting in our world and are awaiting us in just 45 minutes. Lord, I pray that you would remove those for just a brief time, and that you would give us a solitary uh, devotion to you, and that you'd remove distractions, that you'd set our focus and our gaze wholly upon you this morning. And that as we look upon you, Lord, I pray that you would show yourself off in your most magnificent beauty, uh, your encapturing glory, that you would show yourself and that our hearts would be captured and that you would distract us with yourself this morning. And I pray in that distraction that we would be pulled away from the little things that we worry about and that we would find in you a fullness of joy, a fullness of anticipation, and a delight and a rest that is found nowhere else. Father, may you show up this morning, Lord, and as we open your word and as we wrestle, Lord, I pray that you would give us just a rich time in your word, um, that you would allow me to speak clearly, that you would speak through me, that you would deliver that which you, you would have for us this morning. And I pray as we answer and wrestle with another difficult question, I pray that you'd prevent me from going to places I cannot go and and to boundaries and in places that your scripture has not spoken. I pray you'd allow us just to handle your text biblically and accurately and faithfully and humbly, Lord. May you move through this time and may you give us hearts that are responsive um, and may you give us hearts that are ready to respond and challenge and move out to, to display the wondrous work that you're doing in our lives, Lord. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. All right, I want to ask you guys this morning, are there any of you guys that are graduating seniors that have a job lined up? Raise your hand if you are. Make yourself known. All right, graduating seniors. Are there? All right, there's a few of you guys in here, all right, which means there's a few of you guys that are the hated, envious people in our group. Because here's the deal. For a graduating senior who has a job in hand, the reality of April and the rest of April and the rest of May for you guys is that it is going to be one gigantic coast downhill. 
April and May for you guys is not going to produce the greatest academic achievements of your college career. Uh, for a lot of you guys, if you guys know someone in your class that's a graduating senior, you've avoided them at all costs because the last thing that you want on a design project or group team project is one of these graduating seniors. Because if anything, motivation is not what they're going to be strong at in the months of April and May. They have all that they've hoped to accomplish in college has been lined up. It is in hand, and they, in a sense, are done. And nothing they could do in the rest of their academic career more than likely is going to disrupt what they have in their hand. And so they are on a gigantic coast downward. They've put downshifted their gears. And if anything, the month of April and May will produce not the greatest achievements, but an unbridled and unparalleled laziness and academic slothfulness that all of you are envious of. That's why you guys are so desperate to be seniors. You want to just be able to coast in the months of April and May, and and the coast after Easter is beautiful, right? In many ways, an issue in a case of senioritis, if anything, is simply a case of laziness. Motivation has been removed because everything that once motivated you has been removed, and it is in hand. In many regards, I think you can take that same issue of senioritis, the same issue of lack of motivation, you can take it into the spiritual realm with the issue of this. If the believer in Jesus Christ who's walked into the front door by faith and faith alone has entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ and that relationship was granted unconditionally, the question remains then, for those that have entered into that, if eternal life is secure, if it was granted to you impartially and unconditionally, what will motivate you to press forward and to live righteously? What will motivate you and what is, will restrain you from an, a lack of faithfulness, from a lack of laziness that plagues the senior in school? Spiritually speaking, if eternal life is absolutely secure and it came unconditionally, what motivates the person to cease from sin and to live godly and righteously in the present age in a day and a time and a culture in which it's so hard to do? For many regards, I think the question we're going to hit this morning is really a question of motivation. What motivates the person to push, push forward? In many regards, if you're traveling on the highway, you're tr- trucking along, probably got your speedometer at about 10 miles over, and all of a sudden you see a cop, you crash the brakes, right? Try to get within the speed limit, and then after your blood pressure has gone back down and you're about two miles away from him, what do you do again? Speed back up, right? And so the issue is, if cop, if law is the jurisdiction or the restraint of ungodliness, if you have that that is secured and the penalty of sin in the spiritual realm has been dealt with, then what restrains you from sin? What, what is the motive for you to live righteously in a day and time in which it's so hard? Biblically and historically speaking in our church, churches and uh, theologies and, and traditions have answered that question differently through ages. The Roman Catholic Church has said primarily that the way that you uh, are motivated to live righteously is that you are not merited or you're not given eternal life freely. You have to merit it. You have to work and believe. Uh, some have come after that in the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant reformers said this, no, no, it's not about meriting eternal life. But the reformers went so far as to say, you know, to get in the front door, it's an absolutely free gift. But the Reformers, I think, stopped a little short by saying this, that while it's absolutely free to enter the front door, that to remain in the living room, so to speak, is requiring works. That if you do not bear fruit, if you do not add works with your faith, then your works, your faith never got you in the front door to begin with. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of wrestle with this question. In a sense, can I live like hell and still go to heaven? If eternal life, in a sense, was a, a free sports car that Christ gave you the keys to, the question I want to ask this morning is, are there restrictions as to where you can go? Can you absolutely abuse that free gift? Can you actually total and wreck it? Or are there restrictions that actually will verify whether you actually received the free gift to begin with? 
We're going to wrestle that question this morning, and I think we're going to land in a place that's a little different than where you guys have normally heard and where often a lot of people normally land. So that's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to start off back in chapter 5, and what I want to do for you guys is is, uh, actually give you guys the first couple verses of chapter 5 that kind of set up the end of chapter 5. So look with me, chapter 5, Romans, verses 1 to 2. Paul's going to kind of set the stage for us and for our discussion. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Paul starts off saying, hey, for those who have entered the front door and into a relationship with Jesus Christ, they have been justified past tense. They now stand, in a sense, declared righteous by God. Their status before God is that which has given them a peace with God. They are now reconciled relationally with God. And the question becomes is, for those that have entered the front door, what becomes of their life once they've gone into the living room, so to speak, if you're following my analogy? They've entered the front door absolutely freely. Paul's going to say in verse 2 that in a sense they now stand in grace. That the living room in which they've entered into is a living room in which they stand in grace. And he's going to define in a sense what grace does in verses 18 to 21. 18 and 19, basically what, what Paul says is that as Adam sinned, he therefore gave to the rest of humanity a sin nature and a sin penalty. That you and I are all born dead because of Adam's sin. If you did not think that was fair, that you received Adam's penalty for a sin that you did not commit, it's even more unfair what you're going to receive because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is perfectly righteous, dies on our place, and his one act of righteousness provides justification of life to all men. It is by the death of Christ that you and I can enter into and have peace with God again. And as we've entered into that relationship, verses 20 to 21, I think, give you a sense of how grace operates within the living room, so to speak. Look at what Paul says. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That if you've entered the front door, so to speak, and into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that in the living room, as sin increases, grace abounds all the more over that sin. In fact, he goes even further and he says in verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's Paul saying? I think what Paul is saying is that for those who have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, Grace reigns supreme over sin. In a sense, grace is like a credit card that cannot be maxed out if you've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that no matter what sin would charge on that credit card, grace can abound over that and pay for any cost whatsoever that sin may still charge on that credit card. We actually had a friend uh, that we met once we left uh, college and headed up in Dallas, and she actually did a mission trip one summer, uh, went to Australia. For whatever reason, the organization that she went with and the church that she met there didn't have a lot for her to do. So a girl who wasn't on a team with a mission trip that didn't have a lot for her to do in Australia, she did what most people would do on their own. She just shopped, all right? So for the next two months, she just shopped and shopped and shopped, all right? So by the time she got home, she had a whopping gigantic credit card debt, all right? Two years later, when she got married, her husband inherited that credit card debt that was still not cleared off. That's neither here nor there, but the point is this. Sin can charge expensively. But Paul's point in Romans chapter 5 is that for those that have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, grace will always abound over sin. Because it was, what did the death of Christ pay for? Not just your past sins, but also your present and even your future sins. The idea being that whatever sin could charge, grace can abound and cover over it. And so it prompts the question that comes in chapter 6, verse 1. Look with me. Paul says this. If that's the case, if grace can abound over sin, then he says, verse 1, an objector in a sense says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? If grace will always pay for whatever sin can charge, then why stop sinning? The more I sin, the more grace I could experience. And so the reality is this. It seems like, hey, I could just do whatever I want. I've trusted Jesus Christ. My sins are paid for. I've got heaven in the bank. It's a done deal. 
Why not just be lazy? Why not just continue to do whatever it is I would want to do? And that's the question that sits on us every single morning when we wake. Why in the culture and the day and time we live, why live righteously? (laughs) If Christ has paid the penalty of our sins, and that was granted to us unconditionally, and it cannot be taken from us, then why in the world would I want and be motivated to live righteously? All of you guys think that's what you and I wake up to every morning. Why walk righteously? Why walk with integrity? Why go countercultural, so to speak? Paul is going to answer and say, may it never be. I, I think in many regards, if we were to answer our question of why live holy, or could I sin, could I live like hell and still go to heaven, I'd answer, yes, you can. <laughs> if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you could live however you want and still get to heaven. But I think Paul's answer is not going to be whether you can or can't. His answer is going to be whether and why you should or shouldn't. In fact, as you guys kind of walk through, I think basically as we walk through this question, one of the big critical pieces I want to keep center stage and foundational for you guys is that the grace and the gift of of forgiveness of sins is an absolutely unconditional gift. And it is granted to you absolutely securely. In fact, that's why we find in John chapter 10, Christ says this, And I can give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That once you've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are in the hand of God, and there is nothing and no one that can snatch you out of his hand. You are absolutely secure. Paul says it like this in Ephesians, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What does the Holy Spirit do for you and I? It seals us, it protects us until the day in which we are redeemed. Meaning if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, His Spirit has come to live within you and dwell in you. And in part of what He does, He, is, he sealed you to protect you all the way until the day of redemption. It's a done deal. It is absolutely secure. But the issue that comes in chapter 6, verse 1, and the issue that some of you are beginning to think already then is, if I could do whatever I want and grace will cover it, isn't that, in a sense, a license to sin? <laughs> isn't that condoning sin in some regards? And I'd argue that it is not at all a license to sin. It's not condoning sin, but it is doing the exact opposite, actually. I think the greatest means, the greatest kind of environment that will cause change in our lives is not one that is about judgment and about examination all the time. It is one that is about security. A great image for that for me is the Golden Gate Bridge. Some of you guys may have heard this story before, but as the Golden Gate Bridge was being built, apparently as it was first being built, apparently about 25 people plunged their deaths in the icy Pacific Ocean. And so as they were kind of going through and as people were really fearful building the bridge, what they began to do then is realize, hey, let's put a safety net under the bridge. And so as they put a safety net under the bridge, the construction continued. And what they realized with that safety net is only 10 people then fell after, in the aftermath of the net being up. And not only did a lot less people fall, but you also had a 25% increase in work productivity. All right, and the point I'm trying to make is that in an environment of safety and security, work and production and, and um, in a sense, security are far more likely to produce a change in people's lives. In fact, I think about that even in marriage. If in any relationship, family, marriage that you've been a part of, the kinds of relationships that actually encourage and move you to change are the kinds of relationships that actually allow for great security and great safety. Marcy and I have talked a lot in marriage. There are certain things after almost eight years of being married that we realize there are continual struggles that we have with one another. There are certain things that she would love to change about me. There are certain things I would love to change about her. Those are things that are, in a sense, sometimes preferential, but there are also some things that are just struggles of our flesh. There are things about me that I wish I didn't struggle with. All right? And as we got married and as we've walked through marriage, one of the things that we've said to each other over and over again is, I want someone in the bunker of life with me that is going to continue to call me to victory over sin and going to continue to call me to change. But, but I, I also need someone that in the midst of that call is also going to love me even if I don't get there. Right? I need someone that's not going to quit on me, quit thinking that I can change. 
but I also need someone that even whether I struggle with changing or not is going to love me unconditionally. And it's in that kind of environment that you and I begin to grow and to change. And for some of us, our family environments have been anything but that. For some of you guys, you're so bent on approving and pleasing parents because you felt so much that their approval of you is so contingent on how you perform. And I think for many of us, we've come to Christ thinking it was nothing contingent on how we performed. But as we've come into the door and into the living room, now you and I have begun to think it's always and it's all about how we perform and whether we get the approval of God. So what I want to say is I think really the way that you and I begin to produce good works and the way that you and I begin to move and to change and to cease from sin is not by judgment, but it's by security. The kind of security that does not provide a license to sin, the kind of security that begins to create a change in the environment and change of relationship that we feel safe, we begin to risk, we begin to change, we begin to grow. And so if it's not a license for sin, what's the point of works? What do works do? What are they meant to do? What was God intending works to do in our lives? I think ultimately works are meant to display our faith. So we're kind of walking through, and I want you guys to see chapter 6, verse 2. After the question of, can we continue in sin so that grace may increase, Paul's answer is, may it never be. That's as strong of a no statement as Paul can ever make and ever does make, all right? But look at his reason why. What I want you guys to notice as we kind of walk through this morning is, why are we encouraged to do good works? What is the motivation to do good works? Chapter 6, verse 2. May it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? I think Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 are all an answer to the question that, gets to, that starts in chapter 6, verse 1. Why are you and I to begin to live differently? Why are you and I to begin to cease from sin and to live righteously? I think the first answer as you kind of walk through chapter 6, 7, and 8 is this. And most basically, it's that you and I are no longer who we once were. That God did not just pave the penalty of our sin, but He began a reclamation project in our lives to restore and to transform you and I so that you and I are no longer who we once were. In fact, it starts off really specifically in, verse, in chapter 6, the idea being that, hey, you and I have died to sin, meaning that our relationship with sin itself has changed. Not just that Christ has paid the penalty of it, but He has removed its mastery over us. That before you and I came to Christ, there were certain struggles we had for a lifetime that we, no matter how well we did, no matter how hard we tried, we could never get free from them. And the reality of having come to Jesus Christ is that some of those struggles will remain and may remain for a lifetime, but there is a new ability to overcome and a new ability to find freedom. And that ability comes in chapter 8 as Paul begins to speak about the Holy Spirit that has come and dwelt in us. The same Spirit that seals us in Ephesians 1 is the same Spirit that provides you and I a growing new set of desires and a growing new set of abilities. <laughs> you and I once had a taste and a desire for sin that is still there even after we've trusted Jesus Christ. There are still things that are sinful that you and I find delight in. But the Holy Spirit is coming and gradually restoring and doing a reclamation project in our lives so that our desires are beginning to slowly but surely change. Our affections are slowly but surely changing. And we're finding an ability now to overcome sin that we never once found before. So Paul's point is, why continue in sin when you are no longer who you once were? But I think he goes even further and he says, hey, that this idea of no, just that you are no longer who you once were, but that the seed of faith is meant to develop and it's meant to grow. Simply put, Paul puts it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2, the idea being this, that God did not just save you for heaven, but he saved you so that you would live and you'd produce and that you would live out good works. In a sense, I love this phrase that we are his workmanship, the idea being that he is the potter, we're the clay, that he's reforming, he's reshaping us, that he's intimately involved in our lives. And the purpose of that workmanship, the purpose of him restoring and reclaiming us is so that we would produce good works. That is meant to be an evidence, it's meant to be an outworking of our faith. James puts it like this in one of the most challenging passages of James chapter 2, but this verse comes in as James is speaking of Abraham who offered Isaac. He says this, You see that Abraham's faith was working with his works, 
And as a result of the works, faith was perfected or completed or matured. What's James saying? And this is, I think, really, really interesting. James is saying this, that in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed the promises of God. And according to Genesis 15, Abraham was reckoned or justified and made righteous. Six chapters later, Abraham, or seven chapters later, Abraham's going to offer up Isaac on an altar. And what James is going to say is that that work, that exercise, that obedience was that which began to mature Abraham's faith. Right? Did you catch that? That works are not just the expectation of what our faith is meant to live out and do, but they're also that which begins to exercise and to grow and to develop our faith. In fact, it's not just meant to develop, but ultimately it's meant to also just be put on display. Uh, Matthew 5, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I think we are saved absolutely unconditionally, and therefore that which we've inherited is that which is to be maintained unconditionally as well. And yet there's an expectation through the scriptures that you and I are to live a life of good works. There's an expectation, and the reason being because you and I are no longer who we once were. We're meant to not only believe Jesus Christ, but that faith is meant to begin to produce good works. It's meant to be put on display. And this is the, the expectation of good works throughout the scriptures is absolutely clear. All right, but, but here's the deal. And here's where I want to kind of take us this morning, and we're going to kind of, kind of go and diverge from some of the things that you may have normally heard. The challenge comes theologically, the challenge comes in our personal lives, the challenge comes in a church setting when all of a sudden what was to be a natural and expected fruit of faith is absent. What happens when the seed that is faith begins to grow but it doesn't get put on display and for some reason you and I can't see the fruit of faith? What do we do? What do we determine? What do we decide? What does that mean for our personal lives? What does that mean for people that we're walking life out with? What does that mean? Where do you go with it? How do you handle that? Um, in fact, I want to kind of take it, guys, a different direction and say, uh, if there's an expectation, does an unmet expectation nullify an unconditional promise? I'd say absolutely not. Let me give you guys an example. Let's say I had an expectation when I got married that every day when I came home from school or work, there was going to be freshly baked cookies, freshly baked cakes, freshly baked brownies under a little cake tupper deal. All right? So every day I come home, I have that expectation, right? Now, some of you girls are thinking, what a male chauvinistic pig, all right? So <laughs> let's just say, theoretically, it's true, Okay. Not real, okay? I understand, okay? But I reality come home and find no cookies, all right? What do I do? Do I, do I decide that now Marcy doesn't love me? Or do I realize that maybe my expectations are a little off base? That's probably more realistic. But even with rightful expectations, when they're not met, does that nullify an unconditional promise? If I have rightful expectations in marriage and they're not met, does that nullify the vows that Marcy and I made to each other? Absolutely not. Because we made them unconditionally to one another. We promised to live with each other in sickness and in health, no matter where we walked, no matter what we had to deal with, right? So unmet expectations do not necessarily invalidate an unconditional promise. But what do they do? If expectations aren't met, if works aren't produced by our faith and in our lives, then what do works determine? If they aren't going to invalidate whether you and I have faith or not, then what do they determine? Let me give you guys another example. Uh, when Marcia and I first got married, um, or first moved into our house about three years ago, we uh, had had no gardening experience, all right? Um, the only thing we had actually tried to grow and therefore then killed was just a couple simple little potted plants when we were in an apartment. So we get to this house, and the previous owners that we bought our house from were gigantic landscape people, all right? So they had all kinds of beds, all kinds of flowers, all kinds of stuff, all right? So we first moved in. First time we've owned a house, there's all kinds of things to deal with. And so for the first year of our uh, living in this house, we didn't attend to the outside garden and the landscaping at all. We very little watered. We didn't put any soil, any mulch, any fertilizer down. We didn't cut back any weeds or any growth. We just let things go. 
And the result of it that was in our beds was utter disgustingness, all right? Um, it was ugly. It was not necessarily green. Very little blooming was happening, all right? Uh, weeds were growing and choking out the life of what would have been healthy vegetation. So if you came across and came to our house, what you would have concluded was not that we didn't have genuine vegetation and the genuine roots of healthy, blooming vegetation, but what you would have concluded was more than likely that for some reason we did not know how to tend the garden and produce and draw healthy seeds to fruitfulness. Part of what I'm trying to say is that I think there are many podcasts, there's a lot of tradition out there that are saying right now that if you come up and you don't find fruitfulness, you should doubt whether faith exists. And what I want to say is if faith was granted to you and you exercised it and you walked into the front door and into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the lack of faithfulness within the living room in a relationship with Jesus Christ does not nullify or invalidate whether you entered the front door or not. All right, Because what you received when you entered the front door was absolutely unconditional. So if it doesn't invalidate your faith, it doesn't invalidate your eternal life, what does it determine? That's kind of where I want to wrap up this morning. And this is what I think it determines. I think it determines reward. We're going to go in a different direction than a lot of things you've heard. In a sense, in Arminian uh, theology, they'll say that you can lose your salvation, that if you do not produce good works, you can lose that salvation and eternal life that you received. Uh, Some reformers will say that um, if you uh, have believed but you haven't produced good fruit, it shows that you never actually believed. So it's not that you lost your salvation, but that you... Never had it. We're going to argue from a different stance and say that if you have genuinely believed in Jesus Christ, lack of faithfulness, lack of fruitfulness determines something else, not heaven and hell. What it's going to determine is honor and shame. What it's going to determine is reward or loss. Let me, let me kind of walk you guys through that. Let me give you guys a few examples. I think as you kind of walk throughout the scriptures, it's, it's impossible to miss the examples of genuine walking with God people that have sinned horribly. All right, um, As you guys go through the Old Testament, uh, David, for example, King David, man after God's own heart. What happened to him? Grievous adultery, grievous murder. Man of God, no one would doubt that that was a man who had genuine faith. You go to his son Solomon. Under Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel's monarchy will reach heights that it had never reached before. Kingdom will eventually split in the aftermath of his reign, but under Solomon, the man that was the wisest of all, we're going to see that he's going to end his life by multiplying wives, multiplying horses, multiplying foreign pagan gods. All right, Solomon is going to end life horribly. He's going to end life immorally. He's going to end life without a correct orthodox belief and faith in God. But do we conclude that he's not a genuine believer? Do we conclude and do we believe that he's in heaven or not? What do you do with those kinds of examples? In fact, if you fast forward into the New Testament, you're going to have examples of not just men and women who are genuine believers who are sinning like all of the Corinthian church in the letter of First and Second Corinthians, but you also even have some people who sin so badly that apparently God comes and takes their life. Acts chapter 5, two, a man and a woman, a couple are going to lie to the Holy Spirit and they drop dead on the spot. They sin at the end of their life and their sin is so serious in that moment that God comes and he takes their life. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we find some people who are at the Lord's table. They're taking the uh, Lord's Supper invalidly, and as a result, God comes and takes their life right there on the spot. In fact, we also find that same example, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You have a man who apparently, according to the text, is uh, engaged in some really serious sexual immorality, and as a result of it, Paul says, I'm going to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that he'll be saved, though, in a day to come. And so I think what you see is you have these examples, even in your New Testament and your Old Testament, of genuine believers who have the seed of faith, but for some reason that seed has failed to consistently and throughout a lifetime bear fruit. So why? What is it? Do you invalidate their faith or do you go somewhere different? I think you go somewhere different. First Corinthians chapter 3, I think, it begins to provide us a sense that there's a judgment coming for the believer in Jesus Christ. Paul says, 
Each man's work one day will become evident for that day, the day which we refer to as the judgment seat of Christ, the day which will appear before Christ and he'll evaluate our life. It will show because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. So you get an example here of two believers one who has lived a life that has eternal value and it has fruit that is a lasting even into eternity. But you have another believer who apparently has lived life in a way that was wasteful. He's wasted his opportunity to invest in something that was eternal. And as a result of it, he suffers a loss. But he's still saved. All right. So what I'm trying to show you guys is there are examples of genuine believers that can choose to live completely contrary in different lives. In fact, um, so what's the point? Why, what's the motivation of living godly? I think there's kind of two main things. The first is, I think, it, it, the, one of the motivations is for present usefulness to the king that we worship. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, and verses 5 to 7, Peter just said, hey, I want you to leave your life with a whole set of attributes, spiritual virtues that are increasing in your life. I want you to add to your faith self-diligence, then self-diligence, knowledge, knowledge, patience. And he just keeps adding the fruits of the Spirit. And he says, hey, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That one of the motivations to live righteously is so that we could be useful to our king. But if he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Did you catch that? That for the believer who has failed to continue to live and continue to produce and mature and grow, the reality of that and the result of that is not that they never had faith, but that their faith has been forgotten, that they've forgotten what Christ has done and they've moved on in a sense. Similarly speaking, uh, James chapter 2 what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? I think every time the word save appears in the scriptures, it's not talking about heaven and hell. <laughs> I think in James chapter 2, the assumption is that James is talking about heaven and hell, but I don't think he is. What I think he's talking about is, can that faith save him from a useless life? Because when works are combined with faith, what it makes your life is, is useful. <laughs> what James is concerned with is not heaven and hell, what he's concerned with is loss and reward. He wants our lives to be fruitful and to be useful now. But it's not just present significance and present usefulness, but also I think we can talk about the idea of future reward. Something that is in addition and distinct from eternal life. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says, hey, I've ended my life absolutely faithfully. I've, I've finished the course. Not only did I start well, but I finished well. And because of that, there is a crown, a reward waiting for me. And Paul, First John, we'll find in First John chapter 2, 28, we find that not all love the appearing of Jesus Christ. Not every single believer will love the appearing of Jesus Christ because not every single believer will have lived a life that was presently useful and helpful to the king in advancing the kingdom of God. And so the question is, how are you going to live today? Are you going to live today for tomorrow or are you going to live today for your own purposes because you can? <laughs> I think God has provided us freedom in our choices and as we walk faith out and as we choose to how to manifest that faith in what we pursue and what we love. In fact, we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You know, I, I think this idea of judgment is a huge idea. It was a huge idea for me that I got in college. The idea that God is concerned not just with heaven and hell and that we shouldn't be concerned with just heaven and hell as well was a revolutionary idea. The idea that not just that he paid the penalty of my sins, but that I could choose and invest myself 
to receive a reward in the future as a motive to live righteously and godly in the present age was a brand new and novel idea to me in college. Because if eternal life is absolutely secure and I already have it, then what's the motive to change? The motive to change is so that I could be useful and pleasing to the king now and I could have a reward in the future to come that's, in, that's distinct from salvation, distinct from forgiveness of sins. There's something in addition to be gained and received. The crowns that we see, they're referred to all throughout the New Testament. Often we see them in Revelation as used in worship. Sometimes these crowns are that which we would throw in worship to our king. And so the idea being that for those who have lived faithfully, they'll have even more ammunition to worship the king in eternity. Another idea we see throughout the scriptures is that for those that have lived faithfully, they'll have the opportunity to reign with Christ when he returns and sets up his kingdom on earth. That for those that have been faithful, they'll come with Christ, they'll get to reign in his kingdom, and they'll get to be part of his glory that he's going to share as well. So I think there's this huge idea as you walk through the New Testament that there's a motive to live righteously that's not just about determining heaven and hell. That it's not just about validating whether you have faith or not, but there's something indistinct difference from that. In fact, I think in many regards for many of us as we come this morning, a lot of us maybe have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, but the reality is, man, we are struggling. Maybe we've been struggling with some things for a lifetime. Maybe we've been struggling afresh this semester. And what is the encouragement for you guys? The encouragement for you guys is if you have a confidence that you've trusted in Jesus Christ, the reality is there's nothing you can do to invalidate the promise that he's already granted to you, which is you'll spend all of eternity in his presence and you'll have forgiveness of sins. But for you guys who are struggling just like me, the reality of our lives is that we're just groaning and we're struggling, right? I was even struck last night, even as Marcy and I, we kind of did like a half date night, took off to George Bush Pond. We're walking up there and run across a student and for whatever reason, the Spirit just kind of moved our hearts and began to engage this kid and start to talk to him. And he had an opportunity to share the gospel. had an opportunity for about 30 minutes to talk to him about the reality of sin, what Christ has done on our behalf, talk about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But an hour later, after that great spiritual moment of getting to share the gospel, an hour later, all of a sudden, after one too many pictures with flowers, I began to lose some patience, all right? Uh, too many pictures with Caroline, too many pictures um, with flowers, and I was just kind of done. And about an hour later, all of a sudden, after that great spiritual moment, I'm... Uh, not loving my wife very well, and I'm, I'm not being very patient. I'm kind of put out, and I'm done for the night, all right? And, and what I realize, and, and, and for you guys as well, I think, you know, the reality is right behind our best moments <laughs> come some of our worst. Because the reality for us as we continue to walk day in and day out is even though we've trusted in Jesus Christ, even though we have a genuine faith, it is not always manifesting itself perfectly in our life. And the encouragement is that there is absolute security for you and I if we have a confidence that we've done that. Works are definitely an assurance and definitely an evidence of genuine faith, but their absence does not at all invalidate that faith could exist. All right, that's what I want to kind of leave you guys with is that there's absolute security. That if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you can rest secure, and that in that security you can begin to grow and to change. And works are definitely meant to be an evidence and meant to be part of what God has designed so that men and women could see our faith and could see and have an opportunity to be a witness to Jesus Christ, seeing him in our lives, seeing him in our mouths, seeing him in our hands and the way that you and I live. And yet our witness so often is imperfect. And in its imperfectness, in our struggle, what do we do and how do we move through that? I'd encourage you guys, part of what you and I have been tasked with is not just to produce good works, but part of what you and I have been tasked with is learning how to put all the resources that God has already given us to work. First Peter will say that you and I have been given all that we need for life and godliness. But the reality is, he gave it to us all, but we don't always know how to use it all. It didn't come with an instruction booklet on how to walk with the Holy Spirit. He's put a lot of things at our disposal, but we don't take full advantage of them. I want to ask you guys this morning, for some of you guys, are, are you trying to live the spiritual life all by yourself? <laughs> because if you are, then you've missed a humongous resources that God has provided you, and that is the people of God. 
that you weren't meant to live this life all by yourself. Also, he put together, he put before you the, the very resource of his word that he's already spoken, he's already revealed, you can already hear him just by opening the word of God. And if you're trying to walk not just in isolation from community, but also in isolation from his word, you're going to have a hard time hearing him and have a hard time knowing his voice and knowing truth. The third thing I say is, hey, he's made himself available. All you have to do is come and approach him. And no matter where you are, no matter what you're struggling with, you can approach him with boldness. And so I'd say, hey, are you, are you spending some time with him? Are you praying? Has he put a lot of things at your disposal and he's made himself available, but is some part your decision as well whether to make yourself available and to use and maximize those resources because at some level he has planted the seed of faith, but it also rests on you and I to be faithful and to maximize those resources and to see fruit begin to grow. And that's not just an individual project, it's a group project. It's a project that, that we've got to lean on the resources that he's provided us. One of my hopes for you guys as you guys look at your own lives is that you would not attach your spiritual status solely to the way that you're walking and living. Because if works are a litmus test for your faith, then they are a roller coaster ride, okay? In one moment, you're seeing great things. The next moment, you're wondering who in the world I am. Because our faith is manifested so imperfectly at times because we're still struggling with sin and we're going to struggle for a lifetime. So I want to encourage you guys to continue to approach the throne of grace. Continue to trust that he's done something on our behalf that you cannot invalidate even with weakness and even with sin. That's my hope for you guys. So let me pray for us and then we'll take off this morning. Father, God, I give you great thanks that you have done something on our behalf far greater than we could even imagine. I mean, that it is not up to our own personal merit, it is not up to our own personal obedience to even maintain what you've done, but that you've done it unconditionally and that you've given us security in it, Lord. And I pray that you would give us great sense and great assurance that that the greatest place that we can know to look as to what to know that we're saved is not in our works and in our lifestyle, but to the cross of Christ. And that what you had done on the cross is for once and for all dealt with the penalty of sin, once and for all settled the question uh, forever of, of confidence of, where we, of whether we can know we could be in heaven with you or not. Father, for some of us who have maybe not made that decision, Lord, I pray that you would give us peace, that you give us security, that you give us an openness to continue to wrestle with you. If some of us never, ne- have never made that decision before, I pray that you would just reveal yourself to them, and that you would continue to draw them to yourself, that you would continue to lead them and direct them and arrange the circumstances of our life so that they'd be drawn in. And for some of us who have already entered into that relationship, Lord, I pray that you would give us a security that does not condone our sin and our struggle, but that you would give us a security knowing that you love us no matter where we are today and no matter where we'll be tomorrow. But I pray in that security, Lord, that you would begin to also allow us to to really utilize all that you put at our disposal, that your spirit begin to quicken our hearts, that you begin to allow us to walk in faith and to prize and to love the things of you. Pray that your spirit would move uh, more powerfully through our community, through, our, through your word, and, and even through just times alone with you, that we could hear your voice, that we could sense your nearness, and that you would begin to draw us afresh to you. Father, I pray for the sin in our lives, that you would give us humbleness to confess it, that you remove it as a block in our intimacy with you and in our, in our relationship with you as well. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. You guys, thanks for being here this morning, and we'll see you guys next week. You guys have a great week.